Today's reading is from Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 7, and then 17 to 31. So starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote, Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." We're going to pick up in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will." And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel, parsin. And this is the interpretation of the matter, many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning. morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. I'm very happy you're here. Are you happy you are here? Good to hear. 
Good to have you with us. Daniel's our current teaching series, Shining in a Dark World, Be Wise, is the title of this weekend's message. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 5. We read verses 1 through 7, 17 through 31. We're going to try to tackle this whole chapter as we have each week as we've worked our way through the book of Daniel. Also grab your sermon notes out. Let me bring you up to speed if you're not familiar with this this book of the Bible in the Old Testament. The people of God are in Babylonian exile because of their sin. It is God's loving discipline to bring them and to bring their hearts back to him. Now, among the exiles are Daniel and his three friends. Their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar is taking these nobles and trying to assimilate them into his culture. He's wanting them to lose their distinctives and their beliefs. That's how they would conquer a country. And yet the false prophets are saying, nope, 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 don't, don't assimilate, separate. Keep your identity, but don't associate with the people whatsoever. The true prophets, though, they say, no, you're to be in the world, but not of the world. You need to be radically different, but at the same time, radically identify and bring transformation to the culture. Jeremiah 29 makes that very clear. Now, the first six chapters are teaching us how we can shine in a dark world. And we look at the characteristics that we... Uh, find and see in Daniel and his three friends. And so we're learning characteristics of how we can shine in a dark world. We can shine in a dark world because God is our Savior. He always gives us what we need when life is beyond our control. That's what we're learning from their life. Certainly life is beyond their control. God's working in their lives in this very dark, difficult situation. The second six chapters, 7 through 12, are a very apocalyptic and uh, the first six are more narrative form, and this is more apocalyptic, more prophecy, and it teaches us why we can shine in a dark world, because God is sovereign over history. Our life is never out of control, because God is always working all things for our good and His glory. Now, let me kind of walk you through the first few chapters that we've uh, already studied. Chapter one is be different. So we're looking at characteristics that we need to have if we're going to shine in a dark world. Be different. Daniel and his friends resolve not to defile themselves in that culture. Chapter two, be real, was the title. And Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, shows us what conflict resolution and crisis management looks like when we have a real relationship with God and are part of a kingdom that can't be shaken versus Babylon, which can be shaken, the Babylonian kingdom, which will be shaken. And that's part of the dream. Chapter three, be courageous, how to be fireproof and fearless in the fiery furnaces of life, especially when you stand up for what is right. We saw that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Chapter four, Pastor Mark Young did a great job in helping us to understand uh, what we need to do to be humble. And we learned from King Nebuchadnezzar how to avoid the poison of pride and walk humbly with our God. By the way, you guys know this verse, God opposes the proud and gives grace to what? To the humble. Man, you do not want God to oppose you. Pride, pride. If you're full of pride, if you're full of yourself, you make life all about you, God will oppose you. But if you'll humble yourself before God, you have his favor. Nothing better than having his favor when we humble ourselves before God. We talked about that. If you didn't have a chance to listen to that message, I'd encourage you to go online and go to our uh, website or our YouTube channel and listen to that message. And this weekend, we're talking about Be Wise, Chapter 5. So let me ask you this question. What's the difference between wisdom and folly? If I were to come to you and ask you, could you define the difference between the two? 
What's the definition difference between wisdom and folly? Are you building your life uh, out of wisdom or folly? You know, what kind of a life are you building? Do you understand the difference between the two? Well, that question is answered for us. The very end of the Sermon on the Mount by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, maybe you're familiar with the analogy that he talks about building our lives on rock versus building our lives on sand. In fact, take a look at your sermon notes here. The storms of life, this is kind of a paraphrase of what he says in Matthew 7, 24 through 26. The storms of life are inevitable. Would you guys agree with that? So if you haven't experienced any storms, it's probably because you're really young, okay? and, and as long as you start, and, and if you start growing a little bit, start getting a little older, you're going to f- experience some storms. So the storms of life are inevitable. And what they do is that they reveal whether we have been wise in building our life on rock or foolish in building our life on sand. So we could define the, the difference between wisdom and uh, folly as a wise person builds their life on rock. A foolish person builds their life on sand. <laughs> okay, so what does that mean? Well, Jesus goes on and says, the wise person hears and does what, what I tell them to do, I, what Jesus says, and a foolish person only hears what Jesus says. That, that's interesting. He, he, he just finishes up one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached, and at the end of that, he says that it's the people who hear my words and practice them, put them into their lives and begin to apply these truths to their lives. They're building a rock-solid life, and when the storms of life rage, guess what? Their home is still standing. But those who also hear my words but don't put them into practice, which that's a warning for all of us to come to church regularly and read our Bible faithfully, because we can come to church, read our Bible, and not apply the truth to our lives, in essence, be building our life on sand. And he actually says that when the storms rage, for those that their lives are on sand, oh my goodness, they are devastated. It's going to rock their world. So there's some truth there that we need to be aware of, and we can kind of tell. So, So storms of life are inevitable, and they reveal whether or not we're wise or foolish, whether we built our lives on, on rock or sand based on our hearing the words of Christ and then obeying them, applying those truths to our life. So wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. It's competency in life's realities. It has less to do with how smart, gifted, and successful you are. By the way, there's a lot of people here in America today that are very smart, gifted, and successful, and they are fools. I mean, they're all around us. So it has less to do with how smart, gifted, and successful you are and more about your intimate relationship with Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. So maybe you've heard this statement before, kind of this, <laughs> this uh, I guess it's kind of a statement or an analogy, and it goes like this. Give a person a fish and they'll eat for what? They'll eat for a day. Okay, you guys, some of you know that. And teach a person to fish and what? And they'll never work another day of their life. That's what will happen. Okay, that was a joke. That's for all the people that like fishing. They'll just give up work and start fishing. Okay, that was a joke. You guys didn't get it, though. I'm going to have to work on that one a little bit more. No, no, actually, it, the analogy goes, so give a person a fish, they'll eat for a day. Give a, teach a person to fish and they'll eat for a lifetime. 
They'll eat for a lifetime. I think some of you got that. They'll eat for a lifetime. So here's, I'm going to compare that to what we do here on weekend services and throughout the week. Teach a person a biblical principle or truth, and you'll help them solve one problem. Teach a person how to walk with God, and you'll help them solve the rest of their life. Amen. Okay, so, so I'm not teaching you, I mean, certainly I'll teach you some biblical principles, but it's more than a biblical principles. This is not a technique to be mastered, wisdom. Wisdom is not a technique to be mastered, but it's a person to encounter, to engage, to follow, to experience, to hear, to enjoy. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the source, as we said here. What did we say? That he's the source of all wisdom. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in him. It's not a technique to be mastered. It's a person to encounter and to be engaged with and to know and to experience and to walk with. And so in 1 Daniel 5, or in Daniel 5, uh, we have a contrast between King Belshazzar, who is foolish, and Daniel, who is, who is wise. And so here's where we're going. You can see this on your notes. Wisdom doesn't party in the face of death. I don't know if you noticed that in our reading, but there was a party going on there in the first six verses. Pretty crazy party. And so wisdom doesn't party in the face of death. Wisdom uh, recognizes the failure of our wise men. And the third thing is that wisdom sees the handwriting on the wall. Before we head into our texts and unpack these notes, let's pray. Let's, let's go before the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help us this morning. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, we love you. We worship you. Lord Jesus, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything we need for, for meaning, hope, and happiness, satisfaction, security, significance in life can be found in you. So we pray this morning that you would lavish us with your love, liberate us with your truth, lead us by your presence as we build, as we learn how to build our lives on the unshakable rock of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in your beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. amen. So wisdom doesn't party in the face of death. That's based on verses 1 through 6. Keep your Bibles open. We'll refer back to the text as we work through the notes. Got a little bit of introduction here before we actually get to the notes and begin to fill in the blanks. But the year is 539 B.C. Nearly 70 years have passed since Daniel and his friends were, were brought in chains to Babylon. And Daniel is an old man now. He's well over 80 years old. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for about 23 years. And Belshazzar, his super-privileged, spoiled brat grandson, is on the throne. And you're going you're gonna to see that here in these first six verses. Now, let me just say before we kind of look into this text a little bit more, uh, a little more background here. For years, Religion 101 classes at universities took this story about Belshazzar as proof that you couldn't trust the Bible because everybody knows, every historian knew that the last king in Babylon was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, there was no historical proof that any king named Belshazzar had ever lived. So the Bible isn't true. It's made up myths and legends. So a lot of young, innocent college students come into this class and get devastated because they don't know how to, how to defend their faith, and they hear that, and they go, oh, I, the Bible's not reliable, which is hogwash. It's, it's, it's crazy. 
But then, not too long ago, some archaeologists dug up an inscription in the Iraqi desert, the place where, where Babylon would have been, and guess what was revealed? <laughs> of course, a few years before Nabonidus moved out into the desert, he left his son Belshazzar in charge as acting king of Babylon. That's what they found through archaeological discoveries. So, so the Bible is historically reliable after all. Well, it always has been, okay? And so that's why this, in this story, Belshazzar offered Daniel as a reward the third highest place in the kingdom. Did you guys notice that in reading that? The third highest place. Why would he do that? Well, it's because technically his dad, Nebuchadnezzar, was still first, and he, Belshazzar, was second. So Daniel could only be third. So it makes sense. So the next time somebody tells you history or science proves the Bible wrong, just give it a little time and you'll see that the apparent contradiction usually clears up when we gain a little more information or a better understanding of what the author was saying. The Bible is God's word and that's all there is to it. And you can build your life on it. And when you obey it and follow it. Now, what's going on here in this uh, first six verses? Belshazzar is hosting an all-out, wild, hedonistic party with lots of wine and women for a thousand of his lords. It's kind of a Las Vegas, crazy, out-of-control party. And we know that because the Aramaic word for wine in verse 1 literally means lots and lots of barrels, kegs. Oh, it doesn't actually say that, but it just says lots of wine. That's what it means. And Belshazzar brings both his wives, we've got a harem, and concubines, his girlfriends, together. That's verse 2, which was not normal and a deliberate effort on his part to create a setting of sensuality and pleasure. Also, I don't know if you noticed what they were drinking out of. They're, they're drinking their wine from the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, verse 3 in a deliberate act of spiritual defiance. He's basically flipping the God of the Bible off. It's like, we can do whatever we want to. And so what's unusual about this party is that Belshazzar knew the combined armies of the Medes and the Persians were less than 50 miles away and had defeated the Babylonian army decisively, which means the Bab that Babylon was now completely defenseless and everybody in Babylon knew that, and everybody was on edge. And so they are partying like it's 539 B.C., and all of a sudden, in verses 5 through 6, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the, la uh, the lampstand. Can you imagine that? All of a sudden, there's a hand that comes up on the wall over here just a hand with a finger and start writing on the wall, that will make you sober <laughs> really fast. I mean, this is a crazy story. This is what happened. And then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together as he soiled his garments. Okay, that last part wasn't actually in the text. But I'm sure that's what happened. It almost sounds like it, doesn't it? When your knees are knocking like that, it's like, oh, he's overwhelmed. So why in the face of this danger is Belshazzar throwing a party? Well, we really don't know. Maybe he's trying to put on a brave face to inspire everyone uh, by his courage. Or maybe he's trying to drown his own fears in amusement and alcohol. 
That could be it. Or maybe he's just arrogant that he thinks Babylon can never fall. The Jewish atheist philosopher Ernest Becker says in his book, The Denial of Death, that human beings cannot live in full, honest awareness of the meaning of death. If our death is personal extinction, so when we die, it's personal extinction, we're done, it's over, and the son's death is the end of civilization, Ernest Becker says that there is no reasonable difference for choosing X over Y or A over B. <laughs> Let me put that in my own words here. Whether you are a mass murderer or a wealthy philanthropist, in the end, it doesn't matter. And if you think it matters, you haven't thought out the implications of a world without a God. If you're an atheist, now, here's the, you're filling the blank. So this is the thinking here. If our origin is insignificant and our destiny is insignificant, then everything in between is insignificant. So, so I don't know if you know this, but the numbers of, of people becoming atheists is kind of increasing here in America today. And so, and yet they would tell me, oh, life has meaning. Uh, if you're telling me I came from insignificance and I'm going to insignificance, have the guts to admit that everything in between is insignificant. For you to come up and say, yeah, life has meaning. We need to have purpose. Yeah, 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 yeah. Without a God, we have no meaning. We have no purpose. That's the bottom line. And by the way, the Bible makes it pretty clear, Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Bible puts you in the category of being a fool because there's plenty of evidence of the existence of God all around us, all around us. And the Bible just flat out says, you're a fool. You're an atheist. You are foolish. You're building your life on sand, and you're not going to be able to endure the storms of life and the greatest storm, which is death. And so... If we came from random chance and unlimited time, evolutionary process, think this out, evolutionary process, and eventually we become warm food, that's it, you die, you're warm, warm food, you're not going to exist anymore, if that's true, and the sun burns out, as many scientists would say, then any meaning you put on life is meaningless in the long run. I mean, talk to any atheist philosophers out there, that's what they would say, they say, yeah, that's that's right. That's the logic. Unless you haven't, thinking out, you haven't really thought out the implications of not having a God in your life. Blaise Pascal said the most consistent human reaction to unpleasant thoughts about their mortality is distracting themselves with amusement. So take a look at the next uh, point on your notes. So if, that's, if this is all true, we came from insignificance, we're going to insignificance, therefore everything in between is insignificant, therefore let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I thought about that statement. I tried to, I said, where was, the, where was the origin of that statement? I looked it up. I thought it came from uh, kind of the Epicurean philosophy, but actually it wasn't there, but it was actually found in the Bible more often than any other place that I could discover it. And in fact, uh, one of the places that it's found is it's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. 1 Corinthians 15, 32, where the apostle Paul is talking about uh, giving validity and veracity to the reality of the man Christ Jesus, that he came from heaven to earth. 
and he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and he resurrected on the third day, conquering sin, death, and evil. And then he goes on and he says, if the dead are not raised, but if that's not true, he says, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What is he saying? He said, then then we're all doomed. We're doomed. If Jesus came and if he didn't validate who he really is through his resurrection and truly conquer sin, death, and evil, then we're doomed, he said. Just what, what's the use? But he, he's already given us plenty of validity and veracity to the reality of this truth in his writing there in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He just said, well, in fact, he's saying, well, that's crazy to, to live like that if indeed he has come and he set us free. We should not party in the face of death, is what he's saying. Another place that it's found in Luke 12, 19. It's called the parable of the rich fool. And it's called the parable of the rich fools because that's how this guy lived. He had no thought about the future or tomorrow. He was very secular. He lived for now. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter how we live. No thought of tomorrow or the future. And the Bible said he's a rich fool. Isaiah 22, 13, the people of God got caught up in this lifestyle and they were feasting when they should have been fasting and repenting in Isaiah 22:13. And then Ecclesiastes, that's a fascinating Old Testament book. It's within the, what would be classified as the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. How many have ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Show, show of hands, yeah. Interesting, interesting, fascinating book. It's Solomon. And he's thinking out all these implications of life. And he says, there's nothing better for a person to do under the sun, which means eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die under the sun apart from God. If there is no God, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter how we live. And he uses that word under the sun some 29 times, which is a life apart from God, life without God, with a life minus God. And, and then he uses the word meaningless or emptiness or vanity, however, whatever translation you're using, 79 times. Here's what he's saying. Under the sun, apart from God. And he he walks through every experience you could have in life. And he says, but if that's all done under the sun, apart from God, it's meaningless. It's empty. It's a wild goose chase without the goose. That's what he says. And, and then you kind of, basically his thinking is like, well, you haven't thought out the implications of your life. If you think there's no God and you can, you can come up with your own meaning, it, that's meaningless in the end. I found it interesting that uh, Steve Jobs, Apple's legendary founder and CEO, was asked on 60 Minutes right before he died whether he believed in God or not. And he said that throughout his life, sometimes he had, sometimes he hadn't. But after he was diagnosed with cancer, he found himself wanting to believe. Who wouldn't? And this is what he said, I quote, it can't be that when we die, that it's all, that it all just fades to black. All the wisdom we've accumulated as a race, all of our accomplishments somehow have to live on. What was going on deep inside of him? What was that? Was that that me or that out there somewhere? Oh, it's out in the back? Okay. I thought it was this fan back here. It was like 
better turn that fan on before, off before it explodes. <laughs> Incidentally, he said that's why he never liked to put on and off switches on Apple devices. He didn't like the idea of being able to just flip a switch and shut something off. I think God was speaking to him. I think there was something troubling about death and ending it all, like he's just going to become warm food and eventually the sun's going to burn out. That, that troubled him. Now, here's an interesting quote I came across a number of years ago, and it said this, would it not be strange that a universe without purpose accidentally created humans who are so obsessed with a purpose? We are obsessed with a purpose. Let me say it again. Okay. I'll say it again just for you right there. Okay. Anybody else want me to read it again? Okay. <laughs> Would it not be strange that a universe without purpose accidentally created humans who are so obsessed with a purpose? By the way, that's evidence that we are creating the image of God. In all of us, we have a sense that, that this can't be all there is that my life has to have meaning, it has to have purpose, it has to have significance. Because we, we all know that when, when we don't, what do we do? We put a bullet in our head. We overdose on drugs or something. We just end it all. And oftentimes because I, I, I don't have any meaning, I have no purpose in my life. I have to have purpose. By the way, that purpose, you can't discover that on your own, human speculation. It's by divine revelation. That's God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. We're, we're, we're gonna talk about that. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But here's the next one. Loving and living for anything more than God is foolishness. Yes. Loving and living for anything more than God is foolishness. And so, John 3.19, this is what Jesus said. Uh, Jesus made it very clear. Here's the verdict. Light has come into the world. Men prefer darkness over light. Our tendency is that we want to live for created things as opposed to the creator. We want to get our sense of meaning out of creation rather than the creator. We build our sense of meaning on temporal things rather than eternal things. Romans 125 helps us to understand that, describes that. Paul says what we do is we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. That's the essence of sin in all of us. Ernest Becker says, we usually turn to one of three things to console ourselves in facing our own insignificance. By the way, all three of which you see here in the story of Belshazzar and his partying. All three of these things. In fact, you can see all three of these things described for us in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, where he talks about the love of the world as opposed to the love of God. It makes that contrast between, you can either love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, or you're going to love the world. Because you've got to have some sort of meaning and purpose. And so 1 John 2, 15 through 17, which, by the way, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, these are all the same things that Jesus was tempted with. You've got the lust of the flesh, romance and pleasures, lust of the eyes, riches and possessions, pride of life, your resume, your positions, your promotions. So our tendency, so this is our sinful tendency, and this is our world that we live in, we want to build our significance. 
We want to know that our life matters, and so we build our significance on, on temporal things. I am what I do. We build it on our performance. I am, that would be lust of the flesh. I am what I have. I build it on my possessions and my riches. Or I am what people say about me. I build it on my popularity, my resume, my promotions, or my positions. Wisdom doesn't party in the face of death. That would be parting in the face of death. When you build your life on any of those things, Loving and living for anything more than God is foolishness. Wisdom doesn't party in the face of death. Here's the next one. Wisdom recognizes the failure of our wise men. That's verses 7 through 9. So the king called loudly to, to bring in all the wise men and declared, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. But they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. By the way, there's a big point here. We have a lot of wise men in our culture that can't, can't solve the ultimate problems of, of this world. Then the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Now, a repeated theme of Daniel is the failure of Babylon's wise men to deliver when the questions really matter. They consistently come up short. And consistently, each of those times, Daniel appears and reveals that, listen, there's a God in heaven who can answer this dilemma, this problem. He can, he's the one that gives us the solution, who can do what the wise men can't do. Now, obviously, the wise men contributed something or the king would have, wouldn't have kept them around. But here's your next fill in the blank on your notes. So our wise men and women can be helpful. I made a short list. It's on the notes here. So politics, politics can be helpful. They can pass new legislation that can be helpful. Education can teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. Self-help can help with effective methods of behavioral modification. Businesses can provide needed jobs. Science can teach us important information about our universe, psychology can give us some understanding of human behavior. And by the way, as believers, just as Daniel and his three friends were involved in, in politics or uh, the government, uh, they were in the world but not of the world, there to influence the world, we should be too. We should be influencing all of these. We should be bringing our biblical worldview into those. As I'm telling you, all of these are going south fast here in America. And so as believers, we need to be promoted to positions of, of authority and responsibility in all of these areas so that we can influence them and give positive influence to them and help people to say, hey, the answer is not found in any of these. The ultimate answer is they're only found in God. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, Paul makes a distinction between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Let me just summarize it here in what he says. You can read it on your own. He just basically says, life's most important questions cannot be answered by human speculation, man's wisdom. We're not going to be able to solve the problems of sin and suffering and the brokenness of our world. I mean, we've had a shot at it here in America, which I believe is one of the greatest countries that ever existed on the planet, but we've had over 200 years and we can't get it done. We're still a wreck. This place is a mess. Life's most important questions cannot be answered by human speculation, man's wisdom, but by divine revelation, God's wisdom. So only God can solve our problems with sin and suffering and fix our broken planet. That's the hope that we have. 
That's the hope that we can give to people. Now, here's an interesting fact. The wise men who saw the star in the sky and came to see baby Jesus were from this region. Did you guys know that? Interesting. Babylon, of course, had long since fallen by then, but the traditions and writings of the wise men had remained and obviously had been taught through Daniel's influence that ultimate answers about human purpose and destiny come from heaven. They come from God. And one day God put a star there and said, here's your answer. And 500 years after Daniel 5, a group of them showed up to see the baby Jesus. Daniel taught them to look to heaven for the ultimate salvation of the world. I mean, look at this, look at this scenario. Look at the story. Look at the first six chapters. These wise men keep coming up short. Guess who shows up? Daniel. And what does he do? He points to the God that created them. That's where the solutions are found. It's only in him. They remember that. It's part of their writings. So our wise men and women can be helpful, but here's your next fill in the blank. But only the gospel can give us satisfaction, security, and significance that suffering and death can't take from us. I was only going to put significance, but yeah, our, our, our lives certainly are significant because of God, image bearers of God, but it's more than that. We also get our satisfaction and security from him too, and much, much more that suffering and death can't take from us. So think about this. Nothing in this world can give us the satisfaction, security, and significance that only God can give us, and suffering and death can't take that from us. Romans 1.16, Paul says that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Salvation, yes. Satisfaction, security, significance of everyone who believes. The gospel is the good news of the true story that God in Christ Jesus came from heaven to earth and has conquered sin and death and evil and through his life and death and resurrection, all who repent, he did that through his life, death, and resurrection, and all who repent and believe in him have eternal life. What is that eternal life? Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's a relationship with him. You've been reconciled to him through the blood of the cross. That's our solution to all of our problems on this planet. Now, I was reacquainted with a verse that I memorized years ago in my studies these last couple weeks, and so I started meditating on it again. It just lit up inside of me, just like, wow, that's a great verse. How many are familiar with Revelations 3.20, the verse, Revelations 3.20? How many have ever memorized that verse? It's a good memory verse, great verse. And it goes like this, behold, this is Jesus speaking, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He's talking about having dinner with Jesus, having lunch with Jesus, communing with Jesus. It's fascinating verse. That's an invitation from Christ, the creator of the universe. Sharing a meal is an act of communion, friendship, intimacy. That's what he offers us. That's the eternal life that he gives us. It's more than a general belief in God. When we call ourselves Christians, it's more than just kind of ha having this general belief. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. No, <laughs> it's more than a general belief in God. It's more than robotically obeying God. It is two-way 
communication, conversation, communion with Christ that fills you with satisfaction and security and significance unlike anything else can, can give you. Listen, your marriage, your kids, your job, money in the bank, your home, your car, there's nothing in creation that can give you the satisfaction, security, and significance that only God can give you. And it comes as a result of a relationship with Him. The Christian life is an ongoing dialogue with a real person. I was talking with Him this morning before I came in here. I do that every morning. It's the highlight of my day, interacting with God. He speaks to my heart. I share my heart with him. He leads and guides me. He brings conviction to my life when I need correction, but he also brings comfort when I'm down and out. He helps me. He supports me. He loves me. He can do the same for you, and many of you have experienced that. You realize that it's about eternal life is knowing him, not just information about him, but intimacy with God. Nothing absolutely better. That's what the Christian life is, and that's where we get that satisfaction, the security, and significance. Listen, wisdom is not a technique to be mastered. It's a, it's a person to know and to enjoy. That's where you're going to get your wisdom. So... I've got another illustration here. I just kind of wanted to walk you through this. And I want to challenge you just for a moment here. Viktor Frankl, a Jewish doctor who survived the death camps during World War II, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Significance. He wrote that the death camps were horrible places. Suffering was imminent. And death was everywhere. He lost his father, mother, and brother, and wife. That's horrible. They all died either in the ovens or the camps themselves. And he noticed that people responded to it in one of three ways. Here's the first way, first one. Some people got bad. They lost all principles. They did anything to survive. They betrayed and exploited one another. They were informers for the Nazis. Second, second one, some people just gave up. They withered. Sometimes they actually literally lay down, curled up in a ball, and died, and they became despondent. Third group of people. Some became quite heroic. Some people had courage, made sacrifices, were really fearless. Dr. Viktor Frankl said, what made the difference, that's the question, what made the difference between these three groups of people? What made the difference was a person's meaning in life. Your meaning in life must be able to endure the death camps. If the death camp can take your meaning from you, then you'll be destroyed. Okay, and you're probably saying, okay, we're not in a death camp. Oh, yes, we are. Eventually, you're going to lose everything. If suffering and death can take your meaning from you, then you've built your meaning on temporal, created things. You hear me? You can't build your identity, your security, your significance, your satisfaction on temporal things, on created things. Those are good things. Those are secondary blessings. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Those are good gifts. Those are good gifts. My wife, she's a great gift. My kids are great gifts. This church is a great gift. 
I've got a lot of great gifts, but I can't build my identity, my satisfaction, security, significance on temporal created things because it's just a matter of time. Those things will be threatened or blocked or lost. And I'll experience inordinate anxiety and bitterness and depression and maybe even suicide. See, our problem is that we tend to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things more than the creator. What we do is we take good things and promote them to primary things. Those are secondary things. Those secondary things are blessings from God. There's no doubt about it. We should celebrate those. But they're meant to point us to the ultimate, the primary blessing. Every good and perfect gift, what is the perfect gift? It's what we have in Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you, there's, there's been times in my life, and I struggle with it just as much as anybody. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship and serve created things more than the creator. I've done that with my marriage. I've done that with my kids. I've done that with this church. And then when things start going wrong in my marriage or with my kids or this church, I'm not just anxious. I'm paranoid. I'm not just angry. I become bitter. I'm not just de- depressed. I have terrible despair I'm working through. And it's because I've built my satisfaction and security and significance on temporal things and created things. And so it gives me opportunity when those things come to the surface to say, hey, 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 wait a minute. That's not my identity. That's not my identity. My identity is always in him. He's my primary source of satisfaction, security, and significance. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. It's on your notes there. Philippians 121, Paul is in prison. And he says in 121, he says, to live is to have the perfect set of circumstances. No, he doesn't say that, does he? You guys know what he says. To live is Christ, to die is gain. He goes on and explains it more in verses, in chapter 3, but verses 10 through 11. He just says, hey, my ultimate, it can't be my circumstances. It can't be where I am at. In fact, what's interesting about this book, it's a book packed filled, full of joy. He's got joy in the Lord. Wait, wait, wait. You've got some really bad circumstances, and you may die in prison. It doesn't matter. To live is Christ, to die is gain. My ultimate satisfaction, security, significance comes from God. That's why I can ride through this. That's why I can get through this. Another example here, Psalm 3, 3 has been a really great verse for me. David says this, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Now, do you understand the circumstances that David is experiencing here? His son, Absalom, is coming after him to murder him and to take over the kingdom. I don't know if you've ever had a a child go south. That's pretty south right there, okay? If your child's coming after you to murder you and take over your kingdom, he's running for his life, and this is what he says. You are a shield about me. You're my security. You're my glory. You're my significance. It's not this kingdom. It's not my kids behaving appropriately and loving me and supporting me. And you're the lifter of my head. You're my satisfaction. By the way, if he's not your primary source of satisfaction, security, and significance, it's just a matter of time, man. You're going to be taken down. 
So you've got to demote those created things and promote all that you have in Christ Jesus regularly. It's called worship. And that's important to do. Okay. So wisdom doesn't party in the face of death, recognizes the failure of our wise men, sees the handwriting on the wall. That's verses 10 through 30. Look at the handwriting on the wall. Mene, God has numbered your days. By the way, God has numbered your days. Did you hear me? Everybody here. Everybody here. Everybody out there. God has numbered your days. Each day, today, at the end of the day, mark it off the calendar. You got one less day. God has numbered your days. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Huh? We shoot straight. Man, God has numbered your days. Therefore, don't party in the face of death. Your, your life has meaning, significance. You get it not from created things. You get it from the creator. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balance, balances and found wanting. Why is that? He built his life on temporal things. King Belshazzar. He invested in temporal things. That was his, his happiness, his meaning, his hope was in, you came up short. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. You're going to lose everything. Jesus said this, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Live for heaven, eternal things, what you have in God. Get your significance, security, and satisfaction from God. Then you'll be able to manage everything else. It's important, Matthew 16, 24 through 28, Jesus put it this way. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So, are you wise or foolish in your building? Are you building on rock or, or sand? So what does that look like, living a life of wisdom? Here it is. We can see this in, in uh, Daniel. Let's knock out the rest of this. Belshazzar is a fool. Daniel is wise. Here's the wisdom of Daniel, quite profound. Living a life of wisdom is revealed in our character and conduct. We're going to talk more about that next week. We're going to talk about how spiritual disciplines uh, transform our character in time. But you can see that with, with Daniel, the queen, verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man... In your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And she goes on for the next, this, the rest of this verse and the next verse just describes this guy's character and conduct. And it's because of his faith in God. That's what will get you through the difficulties of life. I mean, this, Daniel knows that the Medes and the Persians are coming in to conquer. He's not threatening the least bit. He lays it right out there to the king. King, your days are numbered. It's gone. You're over today. He's willing to stand up and speak the truth without even wavering because of his character and conduct. His character and conduct comes from his faith in God. Living a life of wisdom is revealed in our character and conduct. Here's the next one, cannot be bought. Cannot be bought. Look at verses 13 through 17. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king said to Daniel, now if you read the writing and make known to me the interpretation, I'm going to promote you. By the way, I was thinking about this promotion. It's not going to last very long, is it, huh? Yeah, that's kind of a weak promotion, but, 
But notice Daniel's response, verse 17. Daniel answered the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Listen, Daniel's not a politician. He can't be bought. I'm not saying that all politicians can't be bought, but we need more politicians that can't be bought in our culture today. He's a prophet. We need more prophets in office, less politicians. We need more pastors and less hirelings that can be bought. The reason why Daniel can't be bought is because he's had a taste of the superior pleasures of God that have liberated him from the inferior pleasures of this world. He's like, no, you can't buy me. I already have way too much in the God of the galaxies. So I'm going to speak the truth to you. Here's the next one. Learns from the past. So living a life of wisdom is revealed in our character and conduct, cannot be bought, and learns from the past. Verses 18 through 22, Daniel gives Belshazzar a history lesson about his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar's rise and fall because of his pride and then his redemption because of his humility towards God. Look at verse 22, what he says to him. And you, his son, Belshazzar, has not humbled, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You didn't learn from your grandfather. He humbled himself. You didn't humble yourself. You're going to be taken down. You know what? It's good to learn from your own mistakes, but it's even better to learn from someone else's mistakes. I think that's really wise. So it says Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Here's the next one. Begins with the fear of the Lord. You're not even on, on the path until you begin right here with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. He was proud. He didn't have humility. Here's what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is not a cringing, fearful slave, but a celebrating, faithful son and daughter, wanting above all to honor their father who adores them deeply. I just want to honor God because of how much he loves me and has taken care of me and my life is in his hands. Here's the last one. Lives for God's glory. Belshazzar lived for his own glory and came up empty. Daniel lived for God's glory and came up full. So what does that mean to live for God's glory? I love what Moses says in uh, Psalm 90. He wrote that psalm, and he says in that uh, psalm, he talks about the fragility of life, and he talks about the brevity of life, and he says this, teach us to number our days so that we can have a heart of wisdom. And then he kind of explains what does that mean? How do we number our days? How do we have a heart of wisdom? And he goes on in verse 14, and he says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied, secure, and significant in him. That's the best way to live for his glory. Next weekend, baptism party. If you want to get baptized, you need to go to our class. It's over here to my left, your right, at the end of the service, and we'll sign you up for one of the weekend services to be baptized. Be disciplined is the title of next weekend's message. Daniel chapter 6, read ahead. It's Daniel in the lion's den. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders and leaders. And if you're new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, love to pray with you. If you've got any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's conclude our time in prayer. I'd like to pray Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Father, we pray, may we be very careful then in how we live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. 
Help us to not be foolish, but understand what your will is. Walking with you, talking to you, hearing from you, following you in every aspect of our lives and therefore building our lives upon the rock of our Savior Jesus Christ and experiencing in him all the satisfaction, security, and significance we'll ever need to face the storms of life for your glory. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.